newsroom. Can I help you? Let me get you to a reporter. Hi, I'm Kelsey Landis. I'm Lexi Cortez. And I'm Kaylee Johnson. You're listening to 618 Explained, a podcast that takes you behind the headlines and into our newsroom in Southern Illinois. Today we have a special guest. Heidi Weaker is our columnist and reporter, and she's going to tell us about this really interesting, kind of terrifying story that she did on a a cold case in Belleville's history that really captured the, the town 44 years ago. And she dug up some never-before-seen documents on this and talked to people who were family of this woman who didn't even know some of the details of her death. So, hi, welcome, Heidi. Oh, thanks. Glad to be here. Give us a synopsis of the story and maybe how you found out about it. Well, I think to start at the top, I should talk about how topics are selected for Into the Archives, it's kind of different from the rest of the newsroom in that I'm not writing breaking news stories. It's not sort of, this is the news of the day. We're given a lot of options in what we choose to highlight and pull out of the archives. And um, I would just almost say, unfortunately, a lot of the times it has to do with uh, terrible things happening because that's what made the news and that's what stayed in people's minds. Um, Some of my most popular topics have been the most sad for example, I wrote about a crash in Beckemeyer where a train ran into a, a camper truck full of children mm. who were mostly all related and pretty much everyone died in the accident. There were some survivors. But <laughs> so it's, it's stories like that that sort of capture the imagination and we don't necessarily revisit them because they make such a splash at the time and it almost, I don't want to say scars, but it, it leaves its mark on the community. So part of Into the Archives is not just finding these topics that people remember, but also in some way bringing about some resolution. I don't want to go into healing, it's not really a reporter word to use, but I do feel like it brings some resolution, some closure to questions that may have been left open um, during the original reporting at the time. So I found out about Sabrina actually through an anonymous tip that came into my email address someone from our community said, you're the reporter that does the Into the Archive pieces. Aren't you? <laughs> you know, <our laughs> emails are kind of impersonal. So. so I received that email and, and he said, if that is who you are, you need to write about yeah. Sabrina. And he gave me a date and he said the only person ever suspected of killing her died a few years after the event. And that was all he gave me. So I went into the archives and I started looking at the microfilm record of uh, the original recording at the time. This event took place in 1974. Um, Sabrina was a recent graduate from Belleville West. She had graduated from high school in 1973 and she had worked two jobs in Belleville. She was at a Midwest Savings and Loan during the day. She worked at Kmart at night. She was here one day, she was having some, it sounded like, domestic difficulties with her stepfather. She lived with her stepfather and her mother in Belleville, and she disappeared. And her family did not report her as having disappeared for weeks afterwards. And then uh, she was reported missing, so she went missing in February 1974. Her family reported her missing sometime in March. And then um, her body was discovered in April of that year. 
she had been shot three times, uh, once, I would almost say execution style on the back of the head, once in her chest, and then one bullet that they believe sort of kind of passed through her arm almost. And there was a uh, concrete block tied with a, a boating rope and a boating style knot around her waist, holding her under the water. Her body was badly decomposed. So investigators said, well, this, this crime probably occurred months ago because in addition to her body being in such an advanced state of decomposition, she was wearing the clothes that she had been wearing the day that she disappeared. So that was sort of how we found out about it. And then when I saw initially our, you know, our first reporting on it, I just thought this is extraordinary. And then the fact that it had never been solved, presented it to the editors and they thought that this was absolutely an appropriate topic to take on for it to the archive. Heidi, can you tell us a little bit about what records exist regarding this case? I mean, did you have to go to our records? What was it, newspaper articles? Can you tell us how the, and where else you found this information? Oh, it's, it's actually kind of a funny story how that worked out. Um, we had the most complete record of this case and the court proceedings, etc. We, at one point, were writing a story about what happened to Sabrina almost every day. And I think part of that is because Belleville, you know, we're a city, but we're not some sort of metropolis like New York where things like this happen maybe a bit more often um, than we would like. So what I had to start with uh, was that we clip, well, we have a collection of clippings uh, from newspapers spanning from about the 1950s till about the early 90s. And we organized the clippings by topic. So I went to the file labeled Sabrina Jean Kane, and there were dozens of stories about her, um, all from uh, her body being discovered uh, through Fred Rourke's uh, jury uh, case of selection. I mean, we covered every single part of the process. And then also included in that file was his death um, in St. Louis later, and that happened in 1978. And so to begin with, so started in the newspaper archives. So when you say we, you mean the Belleville News Democrat? Correct. Okay. Uh, yes. As, as an organization, yes, the Belleville News Democrat. Then, I mean, as much as I would like to think that we are the authority on what happened, when you're looking at a cold case file like this, you do want to go to the authorities and see what exists. Uh, initially, I believed since she was a Belleville resident that the Belleville police would have these cold case files. So I sent in a Freedom of Information request to Belleville Police requesting what they had on Sabrina Jean Kane, and I got a response back that said, we have no responsive documents. Well, I almost had a fit because I thought <laughs> that they had taken this cold case and, you know, checked the papers out because, you know, there, there are considerations about space and this was before the digital age and I thought, well, someone messed up and they lost the files. So I was calling over there and bugging them and um, the police chief was kind enough to give me a call back and, and he said, I don't know why you believe we have these papers because I was sending in you know, questions about how long do you keep files and is there a policy about keeping files? And he said, well, to answer your questions, the Belleville Police is ruled by the state of Illinois and the state of Illinois court system sets requirements for how long police departments are required to hold on to cold case files. He said essentially, they must hold these files in perpetuity, all the evidence, all the investigation until 
the time that they the case is solved or you know the guilty responsible party is found so he said if we had uh, Sabrina's uh, you know the evidence from it the concrete block the the items like that he said we would share that with you but we don't he said since her body was discovered in a pond in Stuffy Township he said she could have been killed anywhere uh, between Belleville or we don't know where that happened so he said the St. Clair County Sheriff have the file so I felt kind of dumb and I did a mea culpa <laughs> uh, and then I contacted the St. Clair County Sheriff's but once we did that we were on the right path they sent us, I included the, the FOIA request documents with the story. If you go to the bottom, you can see everything they sent to us, but over a hundred pages of uh, original um, investigations, interviews, things that had never been released to the public before. Um, something I did not include with the story, I didn't think it was appropriate. They sent me a CD of photos taken at the time. Most of them were aerial photos of the pond where she was found they're kind of blurry because again they didn't have digital uh, photography in the 70s but an interesting little bit that i was able to include was the original concrete block it has been cut where they cut it off of her body and also something i did not include they took a photo of the underwear that had been recovered from her body which her stepfather went on to recognize as hers which i felt was one of the more uncomfortable details in the story but I included it because it seemed important for the record. Can you tell us about the the stepfather and any proceedings and and you know do do people think he did it he died not too long after right? Right he did. Um, his name was Fred Rourke. He was a Belleville policeman and it's kind of funny I was talking to our front lady, uh, Sylvia, about this story because she went to Belleville West around the time that Sabrina did. And I said, Sylvia, did you remember Sabrina? Did you, do you remember, you know, your classmate? For, for reference, Sylvia is like the newspaper's mom. She's police officer <laughs> of the B&D. She mans the front desk and pretty much takes care of all of the logistics. Mm -hmm. So she, and she's also a longtime resident of the area, so she knows her stuff. So that's why you, Heidi, went to her. I right. It, well, because it's fun to get people who were here, you know, memories and feedback on what, what happened. And she said, uh, oddly enough, she didn't remember Sabrina, but she remembered the stepfather, Fred Rourke. She said that as a teenager, they would do shenanigans, like hang out in the parking lot at the malt shop, you know, they were real rebels. And <laughs> so he would come through and she said he would get out of his cop car and walk around looking at everybody, you know, so you knew he was there. And, and she said that it, it was creepy to her that she remembered Fred Rourke more than Sabrina mm. because she felt like it should have been the other way around. So Fred Rourke, um, he was younger than uh, Laureen Rourke, who was Sabrina's mother. He, I don't know how to say this without, you know, impinging upon the, the reputation of a dead man, but by all accounts, he was rather controlling of his stepdaughter. He didn't like her to date. Uh, there were interviews with her friends and coworkers that said he, he would rub her eye makeup off with his hands because he didn't like it. He, she told one of her friends that he had struck her upon occasion and that uh, 
her mother had tried to make him stop and, and he had hit her mother so hard that her mother had fallen down too. So there were some allegations of, of abuse, control, things like that, which is horrible to see. I mean, you're talking about an 18 year old and it, it really hit home for me because I, I'm a mother and I have a young daughter too and you would hate to think that that sort of thing was going on in your community and that mm -hmm. no one did anything about it when it seemed like from reports at the time that people knew it was going on. So um, immediately the police began investigating this man, which was sort of interesting because they called him to identify her body. They called him to identify you know, her, her shoes, the clothing that was left on her. He immediately recognized the rings that they pulled off of her fingers. And as I mentioned, in a more creepier aspect, he knew that that was the underwear that she had worn. And he mentioned that, oh, she just purchased that mm. you know, a little bit ago. And it seemed like that was an inappropriate detail for a man of his age to know about his stepdaughter who was of the age that she was. Right. So he was indicted. The, a coroner's jury, which interesting enough, I did not get the coroner's jury from the coroner's office because they only keep records back to the mid-90s. Anything before that, they've lost. But the coroner's jury was included in the investigation documents and the Belvoir News Democrat reported on it at the time. They declared it was a murder, which was part of the reason why when I wrote the story, I wrote about it as a murder. When technically, when you're, when you're writing about an event like that, unless someone is convicted of the crime in a court of law, you're not supposed to use the term murder. Right. But one of our editors said it's hard to say that this act was done in self-defense when she was shot in the back of the head and a concrete block and then ended up in a lake. So we, as a sort of an editorial decision, we use this language of murder, you know, murderer, even though technically that is not the way it's supposed to be done. So Fred Rourke, he was indicted, he goes to trial. The court proceedings should have taken place in St. Clair County but it didn't. Because the Belleville News Democrat had written so much about it, the judge said he's not going to get a fair trial in St. Clair County, so they moved proceedings to Adams County, where they had a trial by jury, and most of the evidence against him was circumstantial. Mm -hmm. And they never found a murder weapon, even though he owned the type of gun that was used to kill Sabrina, he told investigators that he lost that gun around the time that they found her body. So they didn't have a murder weapon. They didn't have any direct witnesses. People who claimed that they had heard him confess to say things like, I didn't mean to do it, you know, it was an accident. That testimony was shown to not necessarily be reliable either. It was by a, a busboy at a pancake house, of all things, but in Belleville. So there was all this circumstantial evidence like he could you know he recognized her underwear and so the, the trial itself it felt like not all the evidence available at the time was used and when I spoke to Sabrina's half-sister which I found her through Facebook of all things Facebook has been a wonderful tool for locating witnesses or you know people who remember these archival stories which is where I found her but Sabrina's sister believes that the reason why this trial was so thin and the evidence was so thin was because he was a policeman and people were afraid of retaliation. A story that I was not able to include in my piece, because I couldn't back it up, everyone who had been involved in it was dead. 
but um, Sabrina's sister, her name is Kimberly Kane, they shared the same father, uh, but they had different mothers. Her mother was Court Kane's second wife, I believe, whereas Sabrina's was the first, Maureen. She said that at the time Fred Work's trial was going on, they had a friend here in Belleville, a family friend, who did the chrome on the side of police vehicles. And two Belleville policemen were in there getting the chrome done on the side of the, of the car. And this, this owner of the business said, you know, I know Sabrina's family. Um, you know, what do you think is going to happen with this trial of Fred Rourke? What do you think? And they said, well, it was something, and this is her memory of someone else saying, they said something like, well, he's one of ours, so he's not going to hang oh, wow. no matter what. So we've got some stories to indicate that it was a bit of a good old boys club here in Belleville. Um, I've written another story where uh, the acting uh, police chief at that time, they went into what they believed was a drug house, but there wasn't necessarily anything bad happening the night that they went in and everyone's blood was up and uh, the acting police chief shot a deaf man in the back. Hmm. And when that went to trial, he didn't even get a slap on the wrist for it. So. I, I like to think things have changed that they are more responsive to the, the public, you know, not in that that they can't do their jobs, but that there's less abuse of authority and power maybe than there might have been in the past. It's kind of the sad part of the whole thing. Well, and also domestic abuse and domestic violence continues to be an issue that remains hidden, which it has changed, I believe, somewhat since the 70s, but it's still something that people don't like to talk about and it affects everybody from from the poor to the rich black or white people are affected by this and there continue to be murders and homicides today that are a result of domestic violence not to say that this man was guilty as suspicious as as people might have been of him he was innocent because they could not prove him guilty that's how the justice system works well sabrina's mother maureen never believed uh, he was capable of it and uh, one of the witnesses that I talked to said that but before she would even speak to me about her memories of the case she said you have to guarantee that Laureen is dead uh, because I will not share my memories of this with you unless she is she was concerned she didn't want to hurt her feelings I can't remember her name right now but I I wrote her down in the story so she said that in the years following the murder, Sabrina and Fred had been dead for some time. They sat down in a restaurant. She, she passed her the restaurant here in Belleville, and she said, we sat down together, and Laureen, they were, they were remembering uh, Fred and Sabrina, and the mother said, everyone hated him, and I don't know why, because he never did anything. So even in the time since, you know, she could just never believe that he did it, and that extended to... Uh, where she buried them. The fact that she buried her daughter in a grave in Fairview Heights, and then when Fred died in a car accident in St. Louis four years later, he buried Fred right next to her. Mm -hmm. And so when we went looking for the grave, which was another part of the story, the sister didn't even know where Sabrina had been buried. So we had to call various 
cemeteries and funeral homes in the area. She believed that she was buried at Holy Cross, but I called over there and they said, well, no, we have no records of a woman named Sabrina buried here. So again, I jumped to the conclusion, oh, they've lost the file, whatever. So I, I started becoming a bit of a badger about calling and saying, you know, well, where is she? And the family says she's here. And so what we had to do was the, the funeral home that originally took care of Sabrina's body, Pete Gardner Funeral Home had been uh, taken over by Valhalla, which is another funeral home in, in the Galveston area. So we called over there and Brad Weisenstein, actually, our photo editor here, he called and said, look, we're, we're trying to locate the grave of this woman who was murdered in 1974. The sister has never visited the grave. He gave them the complete context of what happened and they said, well, that's terrible. And so they literally went into their files. So they sort of didn't into the archive. They found her, they gave us the lot, the location of the grave. So I was able to take Kimberly to her sister's grave for the very first time, which was really emotional for her, as it would be. And I warned her before I, I took her, I said, you understand Laureen buried Sabrina next to Fred. And she said, I was afraid that would happen, but she took it really well and with grace. And then while we were there, she just made sure to focus on her sister's grave and not even concern herself with who was buried next to her. The number one piece of feedback I've gotten on this story is that people believe that Sabrina and Fred should have been buried in different locations. They'd say, you know, what a shame, you know, for all time she's located there. But I think you sort of have to look at it from Laureen, the mother's point of view. Uh, in the space of four years, she essentially loses her whole family, her daughter and her husband, and burial services are expensive. And if you own a plot, and if you don't believe that he was capable of doing what other people perhaps believe that he did, why not bury him there? And then when you go to mourn, you only have to go to one place and not two. So I cut her a bit of slack on that, but people really did like that detail. What was it like for you, you know, as a reporter, you know, we try to remain objective, but obviously, you know, this is kind of an emotional thing you're digging into. What was it like for you to take Sabrina's sister to her grave for the first time? Well, I <laughs> I think I'm perhaps one of the squishiest uh, reporters in the <laughs> newsroom, uh, partially because I never went to journalism school. I have a background of uh, librarianship, and um, as I said, I'm a mother. I have a lot of difficulty maintaining that emotional distance. Even in writing the story, um, I was having some nightmares about, you know, my underwear was spread around the newsroom. Um, that actually happened. It, it, it's in a hard. Dream. In a dream. Yeah, really, yeah, that's not, yeah, in a dream that actually happened. So it's, it's really hard. And it's funny you asked that question, but to, to build that emotional space, what I had to do was sort of step outside myself almost and you're watching a woman come and I also had to tell myself think of the good you're doing you know yes this terrible thing happened but focus again on that healing on that resolution and yeah just seeing her put the roses on there it was really difficult and then afterwards uh, she said may I hug you and I said if I was any other reporter you couldn't but yeah you can give me a hug and so she gave me a hug and uh she was really excited because the nearest tree to Sabrina's grave was a cypress, this huge cypress. 
And she said, you're not going to believe it. She said that those are my father's favorite trees. And she said back home, he had them planted all over our yard. So she almost felt like her father was there too, which was really emotional for her. And I included in the story, she said, you know, this is for you, dad, as she was placing the flowers there. So I think too is maybe one of the more hardened reporters in the room. It's, <laughs> and this is Kelsey speaking. I think it's a misconception that people think that reporters don't care and that we don't feel the stories that we write about. Sometimes it does require a certain amount of cynicism and it requires you to be hard and tough and persistent because you don't always, sometimes you're pursuing people who are lying, maybe they're wasting taxpayer dollars and sometimes it requires you to be tough and unfeeling to a certain extent. But in other stories, like the one that you worked on, it if you don't feel sympathy, if you don't feel the sadness that they're feeling, you probably shouldn't be a reporter because mm -hmm. you don't have the ability to empathize with the people that you're writing about, and you have to you have to share that feeling and you have to let it go through you and 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 to feel it. And so I think that was a really normal, good reporter instinct. So so I think I think that was good. Well, yeah, and I mean, that's such a great point, Kelsey, because I think that emotion doesn't negate objectivity. You can be thoroughly obje objective when you're writing a story and still feel for parts of it. So, and I think, you know, it's kind of that old saying that if you're doing something tough, if it stops bothering you, you should stop doing it. It's tempting to kind of put up this emotional wall around yourself, but if you're writing a story like this one about this young woman who was killed, however you want to think killed her or whatnot, it's emotional and you have to feel it to really be able to give people a true sense of what happened. You kind of have to be vulnerable to give people that true account. Do you think you gave people a resolution for, do you feel a resolution for Sabrina's death? I did. I did. My only concern was there's that little voice in the back of your mind saying, what if, even though all the signs pointed towards this man, what if he was innocent? What if uh, they got it right and the killer is still out there? What, you know, and it, it sort of, that also gave me nightmares too uh, before the story was published because I thought, not only did I write this story that made this man look like a killer when he was found innocent uh, in a court of law, but what if there is a guilty party? What if they are still alive and what if they come for us? You know, mm -hmm. Or us it being the Belle Belle News Democrat, which <laughs> is, is kind of ridiculous when you think about it, but that went through my head, you know? So resolution, yes, I feel that the community was able to see the investigations that not only the police did, but they also got stories from witnesses who hadn't stepped forward at the time for whatever reason, the evidence couldn't be found, like the blood stain in front of the closet. Those were parts of the story that needed to be told. Um, and that also helped get rid of that little voice that said, if you get it wrong, if you get it wrong. So. Well, and I know you, you mentioned earlier that you heard from readers about the concern about the grave being the two graves being next to each other, but what else did you hear from readers? Were they, did they remember it? Were they interested in, in it if they hadn't heard about it before? Well, Fred Rourke's niece contacted me, and I, <laughs> I again, through email, it seems like I get most of my information through email, 
And my first thought was, oh, we are going to be sued. We are sued. We are sued right now. And it wasn't anything like that. She was sending me her information so that we could send it on to Kim. Because she said, as Fred's niece, I grew up with Sabrina um, to a certain point until my family moved to Chicago. She said, where I was living at the time where all these events happened. So she said, I cannot comment on what happened. She said, but the relationship that I knew between Fred and Sabrina was nothing like that. And so I want to give Kim, she said, happy memories of her sister. Kim, Sabrina's sister. Perhaps. Okay. So I, I forwarded um, her contact information on, and someone else uh, who I didn't mention at all in the story. When you're writing archival stuff, you always have to ask yourself Am I impinging on the privacy of someone who is still alive who may not want to talk about something that happened? We are presenting old news as if it's new news. And in our role as a, a news organization, that's kind of a heavy burden. So if someone was to sue us for exposing them to attention that they may not want, I'm always concerning myself about who I'm contacting about these stories. Well, the couple who had lunch with Sabrina the day she disappeared, they still live in the area. I believe they live in Collinsville. I didn't contact them because they were in the papers at the time. They went to court. They testified about it. Uh, I was actually contacted by that uh, couple's, one of their couple's uh, mother, and she said, I, I really wish you had talked to my family member about this. You know, they had lunch with her uh, the day before she disappeared, and this crime should not have gone unsolved because they were the last people to see her before um, her stepfather came to pick her up to talk. I'm doing quotations with my hands. Talk about the problems they were having at home. And she left a note at their house that said something like, I'm off to talk to dad, you know, see you later or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and he, they didn't keep the note because they didn't think anything about it. It was crumpled up and threw it in the trash. But that was someone I could have contacted about this story. But I just thought they already gave so much information in the past. I didn't want to impinge upon that privacy. But then the note from the mother made me wish that I had. Yeah. You know, there's only so much you can include in any story. And. You know, when you're looking at 80 inches already of newsprint, you have to start cutting certain things, and that was something I chose to cut. But What's Can it? we lay out all the evidence that you found in this case? Um, any, okay. Anything that was presented and anything that you learned after the case, like the blood stain that you mentioned? Okay. That's a great idea. Well, the documents that they sent covered most of it. And the interesting thing was, I guess we could talk about the stuff that they left out that I was told about. Things that didn't go to trial. Things that, yeah, didn't necessarily uh, show up in the paper. So, uh, so one of them, and again, we don't know what they left out because when the St. Clair County Sheriff sent us all the documents, it is uh, to their discretion what they choose to include and not include. But one of them was a friend that I actually found in the investigation documents, and she piqued my interest because they told her at the time in 1974, Sabrina's stepfather said that she got angry at him and she walked away from home in a, in a fit of anger. That's what he said. And the friend said, I don't believe that because Sabrina didn't like to walk anywhere. Mm. That's what her friend said. And I thought, what an interesting statement to make. So I found her through Facebook, again, using the Facebook. 
And I said, would you be willing to talk to me? And she was the one who said, well, you need to tell me that the mother's dead, etc. And she, she said, I'm going to tell you a couple stories that are scary weird. Scary weird are her words. And I said, okay, lay it on me, scary weird. And she said, okay. In the days after Sabrina's disappearance, Fred and Maureen York called her. Do you know where our daughter is? She had been talking about moving out. You were one of the people she potentially would have moved out with because she you were one of her best friends. So this person said, well, no, no, she hasn't called me, but I'll let you know if she does. So she says a couple days later, I go over uh, to Sabrina's house and her mother is there and she takes me into Sabrina's room and she said, so Sabrina's mother goes to the closet and goes to open the doors and there's a rug blocking the, the front of the double doors of the closet. So she said, uh, Sabrina's mother moves it to the side and opens the closet and, and she says, look at this. Sabrina left all these clothes, brand new clothes that have tags on them. I don't believe my daughter would have left with all these clothes still here. Who does that? Isn't that weird? And so she said, I was nodding my head. Yeah, you know, that's really weird. And so she said, uh, Sabrina's mother goes to close the closet and she sees something in front of the closet door. She said, I see a, a stain. And she said, it's not a small stain. She said, it's a large stain. And she said, and I can't describe it as anything other than blood. She said, it looked to me like a huge blood stain in front of this closet. So uh, Sabrina's mother goes to pull the rug over the stain. And I said, hey, well, whoa, whoa, wait a second. You know, what's, what's that there in front of the, the closet? And so Sabrina's mother said, oh, uh, Fred said he was helping Sabrina decide what she was going to move out with, and he injured his hand, and that's some blood from where um, he had injured his hand. And so she said, I didn't think anything about it at the time, and then a couple months later, my friend's body shows up, and I, it, it did occur to me right. that there was this blood stain in there. That information was not in the police documents because they went to investigate the blood stain, and it was gone carpet had been cut out or it had been cleaned. They asked Fred Rourke about it and he did the exact same line that he had did to Laureen. Oh, I injured my hand. That's where the blood was coming from. But uh, this witness that I talked to said it was, it was a lot. <laughs> and this friend, is that Jean? Jean. Yeah, that's, that's who it is. Thank you. I can't so, remember her name. Cooney. so to recap then, some of the reasons why people, you know, think Fred did this and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. So you know, one, you have reports from friends who are saying, yeah, Sabrina would tell us he'd do these things, like rub off her makeup, and that he was controlling. Uh, you have, you know, when he's identifying her body, he identifies specifically her underwear and said that she had bought them recently. He had the same type of gun that was used to kill her, and when police went to get it from him, he said that he had lost it. To my understanding, he kind of led them on a goose chase you know oh i left it here oh it's not here sorry i don't know where it went um you can read those exact lines in the uh, investigation documents which are all online all all online. Yeah. <laughs> um and he had am i right he had the same type of rope and cement blocks that were used to tie up sabrina and put her in the lake he had those in his backyard that's what gene said and he liked to water ski and yes and none of that was mentioned at the trial well, it's about the block and the... That falls under circumstantial evidence. You can own blocks and not be a killer. Mm -hmm. You can lose your gun and not have shot your stepdaughter with it. 
Am I missing anything? What else? Was there any other big The busboy testimony? The busboy testimony from the Pancake House where uh, in court his lawyer argued that that conversation had never taken place. What was the, I'm he sorry, what was the conversation? A, yeah, sorry. conversation at breakfast. He testified that he overheard Fred Wark talking to the owners of the Pancake House and he said something like, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't know she was pregnant. I, and, and then the busboy said, I heard the friends say, well, who, who are you talking about? And then he said, Fred Wark said, Sabrina. Now, in the days before he heard this alleged testimony, um, he had been arrested for a curfew violation by Fred Wark's partner. Mm. So the lawyer was saying there's that, he has an ax to grind against Fred Wark. And the other one was that, how can you say that you overheard this conversation when According to the owners, you lost your job the day before this conversation took place. Uh-huh. So maybe, you know, his memories got messed up, etc. I wasn't able to find that witness because he's moved out of the area. But he was discredited and they didn't. Yeah. Right. Um, but he was the kind of like the key witness, according to Belleville News Democrat stories. There was also an anonymous note as well, right, that was sent to law enforcement. At yep. what point did that note come across their desk, and what did it say? Um, I'm not sure when. If we look at the documents, it has the time stamped on it from the post office of when it was mailed. But it said something like, her stepfather killed her, that damn policeman, is what it said. And again, anonymous postcards can't be used to... Mm-hmm say that someone did it but even at the time you could tell the attitudes were that it was him there was also you mentioned this kind of the this thing about her pregnancy there's no evidence she was pregnant to be clear but whenever fred was talking to a police officer he was being interrogated and interviewed whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and the police officer asked him do you know anyone who would have had it out for sabrina something yeah, to that any effect? reason why she would have been killed and his response immediately was, "You think she was pregnant?" Well, right. Which is a, I mean, weird. <laughs> it's a strange. It's a strange response. Well, and it's it's a strange that he made that leap, you know. Right. Yeah. Unless, well, let's not. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's strange. So um, you said that Jean gave you some scary, weird stories. Yes. Were there any others she talked about? Well, yeah, actually. One was, uh, had something to do with when the coroner called. So uh, Sabrina's body is discovered. She and her mother, uh, Jean's mother, go to the Rourke household to express their condolences, you know, like you do when you, after the death of a good friend. And she said while they were there, the St. Clair County coroner called. And Fred, Fred took the call. He wouldn't let anybody else talk to the coroner. And she said he was on a landline. So he takes the corded phone, you know, runs into the kitchen like he used to do in the time before cell phones. And the cord is all stretched out and she said sometime later he comes back and hangs up the phone and he turns to the room and the first thing he says was well she was pregnant mm-hmm. and Jean said a silence descended in the room and Sabrina's mother said why would you have thought she was pregnant well, you know, why and and Jean said she remembered that she Jean said well that would have been a reason for killing her and she said at that moment Fred looked at her with such emotion or lack of in his eyes that it frightened Jean's mother. And so Jean's mother cut the visit short and kind of was like, oh, time to go, you know, and they got out of there. But she said there was something wrong in the way that he looked at her in that moment. So 
that was kind of a scary, weird moment. And then the other was that, so, okay, so Sabrina is gone and buried. It's 1978. Uh, Fred Rourke was not allowed to uh, rejoin the Belle Belle police. Uh, that was something else that was interesting that happened. He refused to take a lie detector test uh, about Sabrina's murder. I'm going to say murder. About Sabrina. And the police chief essentially ordered him to take it to uh, restore the community's faith in him. And so he sat down and he gave his name and address and refused to answer any other questions. And yeah. so because of that, the Belleville Board of Police and Fire Commissioners fired him because they said he disobeyed a direct order from his superior officer. So Fred was not allowed to work on the police force. He began driving trucks. And so um, on the day of his death, he was driving a truck in St. Louis and he was cut off uh, by a car and he hit a pole and he died. And Jean shared that the, the rumor going around at the time, we couldn't prove it because we didn't know who cut him off, but that he was cut off by a Cougar convertible. And she said, you have to understand, Sabrina's very favorite car in the entire world was a Cougar convertible. And she said, the reason why I knew that was because I drove one. And every time, you know, we were getting in my car, you know, going anywhere, Sabrina would say, you're driving my car. This is the car I should have. Oh, I wish I had your car. She said, so the fact that he was cut off by a Cougar convertible and the word on the street was the, the woman driving it had waist length blonde hair and Sabrina also had waist length blonde hair. And when she heard that story, her first thought was she got him in a karmic way from beyond the grave. Sabrina took her revenge, so to speak, on this man that everyone believed had ended her life. Obviously, we can't report that. It's, it's not only a ghost story, but it's, you know, a rumor hearsay. But I, I, I felt resolution in that. Mm -hmm. The part that I couldn't report was this kind of karmic closure. But it goes to show how much of a, it sounds like it became a community legend. It was so yeah. disturbing that it was ingrained in people's minds. And the, that's what cold cases do. In a, is that right? I mean, you, you've reported on... What effect do cold cases have on a community? Well, you're right. It becomes it becomes part of the story, and, and the stories that we tell ourselves are who we are, who we see ourselves as. And so, you know, we're not just a community who uh, lost this, uh, you know, beautiful 18-year-old to domestic abuse or violent situation, but we're a community where we find justice, even when you know it doesn't seem like at the time that we did. Yeah. So, so why are these, the, you mentioned before, that these are some of the most highly read stories of the Bat Into the Archives that you write. Why is it, do you think? Why are people so interested in these stories that are decades old that presumably can't be solved? Why, why do people want to read about this? Because it's part of our identity. You know, it's more than history. It's, it's who we are and, and these stories. And it's in the record. And yeah, I think it's emotional. It goes back to that whole idea of, you know, why do we report on what we do? It's not just because people are doing things wrong, but because wonderful and terrible things happen, and by reporting it, it becomes part of our narrative. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Heidi. I mean, what an incredible story, and your reporting on this is just so thorough, and there's so much investment there. 
if you guys haven't read this story, I definitely recommend uh, going to bnd.com. You can just search for it, Sabrina Kane. Um, and C-A-I-N? C-A-I-N. And there are, you know, documents in there. There's photos. There's a video. Um, I would I would definitely check it out. And check out some of Heidi's other Into the Archives works because they're all equally as thorough and kind of amazing to look at how these things happen in our past and still affect us today. Thank and you, Heidi, for your time. Speaking of the video, isn't it of Sabrina's half-sister learning things about the death that she had never known before because of our archives? Yeah, it is. Fascinating stuff. Well, that's uh, the purpose of this podcast is to get behind the story and, and share the things with you listeners that we can't share in in the story either because it's not appropriate or we can't fit it one or the other. So <laughs> yeah. thank you. Thank you so much, Heidi, for your time. How do I stop this? I'll just bullshit some stuff. Um, for more headlines. So uh, thanks so much for listening again. Thanks, Heidi, for being here. And for more headlines, visit bnd.com. You can join our 618 Explained Facebook group to see when new podcast episodes are going to be available. Tell us what you want to hear more about. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. Um, just let us know. So next week, we're going to be delving into some more interesting stories, more local journalism, and kind of looking behind those headlines of what, you know, didn't make it to print or how we, you know, went about reporting that story. So thanks, guys. I'm Kaylee Johnson. I'm Kelsey Landis. And I'm Lexi Cortez. Thanks so much. Until next time. And uh, thanks, Derek Holtman, um, our photographer at B&D, for editing and putting together this podcast for us.